0: Hey, how are you doing? Adam Buxton here. Thank you very much indeed for joining me once again for uh, the Adam Buxton podcast. Episode number 19, this is, and it is the beginning of May 2016. And it's actually a very, very pretty evening out here in East Angular. After a few weeks of fairly grim, cold, windociousness, it's uh, It's lovely. The bluebells are coming out. The cherry blossom is popping from the trees like cherry blossom. And the problems of the world seem a long way away, especially for Rosie. Her biggest concern is whether she can find some deer to terrorise. This is her favourite route through the wood because there tend to be quite a few jacks deer that appear from the undergrowth every now and again. She goes yipping and yapping after them very excitedly. One day, she will be cornered by one of those monk jack deer and get absolutely duffed in. It does happen sometimes to unlucky dogs. Any luck, Rosie? No, I haven't found anything. That's a pretty spectacular view, isn't it, Rosie? Look at that. We've just come to the edge of the woods and we're looking out over a wide expanse of field... And it's very green and lush. The sun is going down and half the field is now bathed in a yellow light. Uh, The other half is in shade. I've got a real gift for describing nature, don't I, Rosie? What do you think? Yes, you do. Thanks. Uh, Anyway, so listen, this week's podcast features a conversation between myself and Ben Bailey-Smith better known by his stage name, Doc Brown. He's an English rapper, comedian, actor, screenwriter and voiceover artist. He played DS Joe Hawkins in the TV series Law & Order UK. It's just one of the many things that i failed to talk to Ben about. I mean, these are not comprehensive, career-spanning interviews that I do here on this podcast. I think you've probably realised that by now. Occasionally we'll dip in and out of career things, but sometimes it's fun just to, just to chat. Just to be two humans having a chat. Why is my voice gone like that? I don't know. I'm just bringing it down. There we go. We talked about how Ben got into comedy. Uh, we discussed the sad story of Amy Winehouse, who Ben knew a little bit, worked with her as part of uh, Mark Ronson's travelling musical bandwagon back in the day. We talk about the deceptively difficult art of writing books for young children. That's something that Ben has done recently. We talk about that and other classics of the genre. There is rather too long a section, for my taste, in which Joe Cornish's film Attack the Block is fulsomely praised by Ben, who I forgot was actually involved with the production.
1: More than I was, probably.
0: We also talk about offensiveness in comedy. But we began our ramble chat by discussing an area of artistic endeavour in which I am, I think, generally considered to be something of an authority. And that is, of course, rapping and rappers. Which is good because it gives me an excuse to dig out an old jingle, my rapping man jingle, from the old Adam and Edith days and stick that in as well. So, without further ado-do, here we go. Old dirty
2: bastard. <laughs> I was just saying, a friend of mine interviewed him once and uh, came back from the states only to find the audio mangled. Um, went to organize a, another trip out there off his own back because the magazine wouldn't pay um, for his mistake, <laughs> and uh, unfortunately ODB died before he before he got on the phone. Oh no! Yeah. A, a huge loss to hip hop, and I'm gonna go out there and say comedy. Yeah, because I I listened to uh, Return to Thirty Six Chambers. That album has got a whole other layer to it. That's almost like a a kind of piece of Red, Red Fox or like that that classic kind of nightclub seventies black yeah. uh, underground comedy. And well, it really is there. It's there. That's good advice for me too. Then because I never cracked
0: that album when it came out, and I tried, but I never even got on with the Chronic and. Uh, you know all that. Too too aggressive. Yes, it was. I was just too used to pop music. Yeah. You know, I I grew up listening to Thomas Dolby and the Thompson Twins and then Bowie, and it was a certain sure. kind of, And I just didn't have the open mindedness at that point to accommodate something so different.
2: I think I was relatively similar. You know, I was listening mainly to indie. But I did listen to bits of hip hop, but the kind that you'd expect a, a, an indie fan to listen to. So yeah. I listened to like Dayla, all the native tongue stuff, right, Black exactly. Sheep, uh, uh, Triacal so, Quest, yes, exactly. The Far Side. The Probably the hardest I went at that stage of my life was The Beat Nuts, you know? Yeah. And it was a neighbor of mine, Mike in 93, who played me. Um, well, he made me a little tape of Return to the Thirty Six James, the first Wu-Tang album. And I literally, I put it on. And turned it off within about a minute and a half. It's it, to me, it sounded like mangled screaming, like heavy metal played backwards. I I I couldn't compute. I had no reference point for it at all, so it took me a long time. And as what well. was the
0: how did how did you break through then?
2: Um, probably, I mean, so we're ninety three, so it was about fifteen. So I think we were just starting to creep into certain raves, you know, um, ones where they, you know, back in the nineties, where they wouldn't care how old you were. Um, and these tended to be mainly like alternative raves that play a bit of everything because mm-hmm. we were still too scared to go to actual rap clubs. I think it was there when I started hearing Protect Your Neck and Wu-Tang Clan Ain't Nothing To Fuck With on big speakers, you know, and seeing guys like moshing out. And that I think that was the turning point. Then I went back and listened again and thought, actually, no, this is accessible. Yeah,
0: I remember being derided that I used to work at a restaurant called um in the Strand, mm, I yeah, bart- I know Yeah, I was a bartender for a long while, and there was a, a busboy there called Ricky. Little, he was he's a like a little rat rat boy,
2: rat boy, and, rat boy
0: Ricky, and he used to take the piss out of me and the stuff I would listen to. What are you fucking listening to? You listen to your fucking <laughs> Dale So, your fucking hippie hop. <laughs> hippie hop,
1: yeah. He used to call it, do you like a little flower power
0: hippie hop? <laughs> and he thought it was ludicrous, inauthentic. Yeah. For me, it was a great entry point, man, because Definitely. they were sampling all this unusual Definitely. stuff and mm-hmm. sampling artists that I knew about. And so it was non... I guess it was non-threatening is what it was. But then then from there, you know, I was able to make a transition to Eric B and Rakeem and things like that. There you go. Understand the value in that and get something
2: out of there it. There you go. There's always been a weird split within hip hop culture between sort of what's considered like street stuff and sort of crossover mm-hmm. stuff, you know, and, and with every era of hip hop. It's, it's always, always been there, but just been called slightly different things. So, like later in the 90s, it sort of became like the difference between like gangster rap and or, or, or street rap and uh, backpack rap is what they call it. The stuff that like maybe skaters would listen to or students. Uh-huh. To me, it's, it's all rap. Like, if it's good, then I'll listen. If it's got s- some substance to it, I don't really mind like what other people describe it as. For me, there's a huge difference between certain street rappers, some have no substance, some have it all. Like, you know, a lot of people like Rick Ross at the moment, but to me, he he's not saying anything other than what you hear on the surface. So, you know, I think you just treat it like you treat all musical forms. How much depth does it have? Will you mm. still be listening to it in 20 years' time? I, I mean, I'm drawn tell.
0: to, in whatever genre, I'm drawn to characters, you know, yeah, talking big about time. Uh, RZA and people like that and, you know... um In Public Enemy, of course, it's Flavor Flav, Mm. The the Clown. Slick Rick. Kendrick Lamar seems like a character now. Big time. I can't say I know a huge amount about him, but I bought that
2: um, album last year and thought it was pretty interesting. Very complex individual, kind of in his own genre, that stand alone. There's just no other rappers like him, and the best guys are always like that, I think, in every genre of music. The best guys seem to be within their own subgenre.
1: Hello, I'm a rapping man. I quit my job to rap. People say I shouldn't have done that because my rap is crap. But I keep on rapping because that's what I do. Never listen to advice. That's my advice to you. Rapping.
0: Yes.
2: Yes.
0: So you started rapping um, (laughs) and getting paid for it at a pretty early age. Is that right?
2: Uh, Yeah, I guess, but never enough to make a, a real career out of it. You know, I was one of those kids who always wrote rhymes But, you know, I kept them to myself. I I was just, you know, I never felt I had the requisite kind of backstory to to be a a rapper, you know, because the kids that I saw becoming rappers, they always had, you know, they told these tough tales. They seemed to be from a background that I thought, oh, yeah, that's acceptable. Someone like me can't, even though like...
0: Because your upbringing was too happy.
2: Yeah. because I thought, you know, oh, well, hold on a minute. I grew up on a council estate. That should be enough. But then I thought, well, actually, I never had any concept as a kid of being like broke or or unhappy you know my house was always one that was just full of creativity and and fun and interesting people and i'm really sorry yeah you know and constant encouragement from my parents so i just thought this is you can't tell these stories (laughs) in in rap no one wants to hear it (laughs) it took me a long time to realize it it doesn't matter as long as you can make interesting music and 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 be an interesting character it's it's fine and I, i learned that the hard way in a way through through battle rap
0: so tell me, because I've never quite understood Terrifying. how it works. To me, it's like wrestling. I don't understand to what extent it's real or rigged mm-hmm. or how mm-hmm. much do you know you're going to say before sure. you
2: get there or how does it work? Well, now it's completely different, okay? So it's two forms of battling I'm, I'm, I'm talking about here. Right now, it's like it's more like boxing. So the bouts are set up with months in advance. Um, you will study your opponent, everything you know about him. If you can you know get in contact with people that hate him or her then even better you find out little secrets whatever whatever you can find out to embarrass them and then on the day you'll do three rounds of maybe a minute each just destroying the other person so it's very organized whereas when i did it it was only one rule you freestyle you make it up um and i wouldn't say that one's necessarily better than the other i'd say if anything the way it is now is more guaranteed entertainment because these guys have prepared so it's like going to see a stand-up and yeah it's amazing that he's he's just doing the whole thing riffing but actually the, the quality is more likely to dip quite tragically as opposed to somebody who's written an incredible 20 minutes
0: yeah well that, that's a big important difference isn't it and there's people who strongly disagree with the idea that you should go and and just tell jokes i'm talking about stand-up mm. now but at a certain point i like it if they you sort of think, OK, that was good, nice bit of crowd work. Mm-hmm. Can you give me some of the stuff you've slaved
2: over? There you go. And so, honed. Mem- something memorable, something that just... I don't mind knowing that I've I've seen behind the curtain and that this is all uh, an act. If it's a great act, it's a great act. Yeah. There's certain quotables that you remember from comedians that could have only ever been written, and that's a beautiful thing. And why, why shouldn't an audience the following night see that same... Beauty, yeah, and for the for the rap battles, mm.
0: you know, a man
2: Yeah, of course. Um, yeah.
0: Those Irish guys who go and they riff, apparently off the top of their heads on subjects thrown at them by the audience yeah. and stuff, and it is mind blowing. It I really
2: don't... is. I mean, with, with Rob, I mean, I'm Rob Broderick, who is basically a Bandaman, He. I met him very early on when I started doing stand-up because obviously people were saying, oh, you know, there's this other guy who raps, you know. So we came across each other. And actually, I went to a few of... He 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 used to run improv classes as well. And I went yeah. to to check out his, his style. And I realised that what he does is he sort of really combines the two worlds because within stand-up, improvisational experts will always have a kind of structure, won't they? They'll have like a sort of these kind of walls within which they feel they've got enough freedom to to improvise. So it it is improvisation, but at the same time, they're in control the whole time. So what Rob does is he creates these games that he can play that have got the same structure every night, but obviously something new is going to come out every night. Like, Mm. Like, for example, the what's in your pocket thing that he used to do. I mean, that blows comedy people's minds, audiences, I mean... Whereas in so rap, explain that for someone who hasn't seen it. okay that. so what I don't know if he does it anymore but Rob used to get people to take objects out of their pockets and then he'd create a rap on the spot uh, encapsulating all of those items somehow and saying a little something about the person that was holding it up right which like I say in comedy terms you're kind of looked at as like it's it's the return of the son of God whereas if you were to do that in rap in 2016 it would be considered very hack uh-huh. but. That's the same reason that I became a big hit in stand-up, you know, because I was doing shit that I wouldn't dare do in the rap world. It might be considered maybe corny, but in the stand-up world, it was something new, it was something fresh, and it was, it was a different voice.
0: It's a valuable lesson to learn, isn't it, that sometimes the trick to making something work is just finding a new context for it. There
2: you go. Or, um... And I stumbled across that with, yeah. with, with my, my act, I guess which and, wasn't really an act in initially yeah. it just became one. So you started out sort of quote serious. Very much so man, yeah. very much so. Like I'd sort of given up on trying to make a living from rap um around 2000 and six-ish I'd I'd put out uh, my third CD and it was doing okay and I was a bit of a personality on the underground scene but this was sort of before the real explosion of internet content for for musicians you know and I I was still struggling from an old school perspective to try and sell records and and, uh, I had a side job um, working for Mark Ronson we'd been touring around on and off and how did
0: you hook up with him?
2: It was from a night that I used to run in the West End um, out of my friend's record shop, which was called Deal Real, just in Carnaby Street. And we used to have a live night on Fridays, just get artists that we knew to come down and perform for free. It would just be a big blowout. We used to have a great laugh down there. And Mark was a sort of budding hip hop DJ at the time and he passed through. And we just got to know each other from that. And then he, he you know, he was he was learning the guitar and he wanted to put this band together and do these covers. This is after he had like a sort of rap album rap-ish album out called here comes the fuzz
0: Uh uh-huh so what 2005 this is
2: 2005 yeah and he put the band together and it was just sort of a collective of of different people and i he brought me on board as the rapper and i used to like introduce the band as well and just be a general i was kind of a like i was just like a bez really i was like a hip-hop bez um clown man. Yeah, clown man. Uh, but, you know, it was it was great and uh, we had some amazing moments, but anyway, eventually I, I I was removed from that that outfit. And I just really couldn't face going back to to like the underground rap thing. I was just getting a bit bored of it all. I Had a young baby at the time and I was really struggling for money and stuff and I was really wondering what to do with my life, to be honest. <laughs> and I was looking looking at normal jobs. Um, I don't. I think I, I applied to become a spokesman for Kick It Out, like an anti-racism charity for uh-huh. football. And that kinda, presumably is not a big payday, though, is it? I don't think so. I don't remember seeing the, anything amazing about the wages. But I thought, oh, you know, you're a performer. You could talk about football and racism. These things are close to your heart. You'd be, like, you could make a life like that. Yeah. You know? And I'd sort of just got to the idea. Okay, now it's time to be a man. I've got a kid, sensible job. Forget all this showbiz luck. And. Getting ready for the interview for that job, I got a call from a guy. I don't know if you know him actually. His name is Danny Robbins, okay. um, writer, and I'd known I'd met him through. He used to have a show on Radio One uh, back when I was doing music, and he was saying, you know, now he he wrote comedy and he'd written this sitcom for Lenny Henry for Radio Four, all black cast. Mm. Uh, and Danny, for those who don't know him, like uh, a white guy, and uh, he, he was feeling a little nervous about. You know some of the dialogue and whatnot, and he called me up as right. his sort of requisite black friend, and, and said, "Would you take a look at some of the, you know, the colloquialisms? You know, maybe you could help me out. Um, I can get the BBC to pay you two hundred quid." So I met him in Nando's, at Camden Town, and uh, went through the script. <laughs> you know, saw a couple of things. I was like, "Yeah." I mean, I literally, I I didn't know why I was there, but I just thought two hundred quid, why not? Sure. And, you know, there was a couple of little moments. Like, I think there was one little moment where he'd put, like, bomber Clot or, like, Blood Clot or something like that. I was like, when's this going out? And he it was, like, <laughs> half six, Radio 4, Thursdays. I was like, okay, you can't say that. He's like, why not? I was like, well, it's just like, I mean, in, in Jamaica, it's, just, just, it's, like, ridiculously rude. Ah. Like, Blood, blood Clot, for example, that's, like, calling someone a used sanitary towel. It's, like, really slow down. Ah. and he was like oh I thought it was just a you know an exclamation like oh you know I've tried to That's my hand funny I never I
0: never knew it was really offensive it's like one of those things like twat yeah. me, me and Joe used to say in America twat you can't be radio. going around saying twat no and you can't say twat yeah it's a bit up, up north in the UK twat is really popular. Twat's harder yeah, yeah. yeah
2: so you know it was little things like that and then you know other things where I just thought oh I think it'd be funnier if he reacted like this or said that yeah and then that was it really. He got my two hundred pound. And then the next thing I know, the producer called me and he said, Um, Lenny wants to meet you. And he liked the changes you made, right? So I meet Lenny Henry and he's he's like, Oh, you don't understand how important it is to have like a black writer. There's no black people behind the scenes, the BBC and media. And I'm stood there thinking, Okay, I'm not a writer, first <laughs> and foremost. Like I'm I'm nobody. And um, they decide to have me on for the whole series as a kind of like a script consultant. Uh So suddenly I was working in comedy and it was at the end of that series. that I mean, you know how the game goes. It's like working in one job in this business becomes almost like a little mini audition for another job, depending on who you're working with. Because everybody moves on at the end, everybody moves on to their separate jobs. And if they like something that you did, they might give you a call. And that's exactly what happened. The producer got me writing gags all of a sudden for other radio four shows and this is uh the end of 2007 now mm-hmm. and it was during that process i'd started writing little songs as well um silly little jingles and songs for some of the shows so this producer says well, i don't understand why you don't perform comedy you know you can write these funny songs you can you can write gags you should be performing comedy and I was still in such rapper mode in those days. I was like, no, I'm not a joke, bruv. I'm, yeah, not, I'm yeah. a serious guy. You know, that's not my bag. And he said, look, come down to this, this night and, and just tell your story. And I'm thinking, really? So I, I go down and I just went out there. It's so typical of my first year of doing comedy. I just went out there and it was so weird. I, I don't. F- I, there was no laughter, Yeah, but I didn't feel like I died because I didn't understand the concept of dying. I just went up there and, and talked and I came off and <laughs> so the producer said to me you know what I'll tell you what it was really interesting and if, if it was a, a talk it would have been brilliant <laughs> but why don't you come back next month and like actually think of some some gags You can you can do that you can write gags I know you can so that's what I did I came back and I prepared a little thing about how incongruous it was for a rapper to work at Radio 4 and that got a few little chuckles but again I sort of ran out of stuff to say so I called upon an old hack rap thing. You know, I said, uh, you know, g- give me your names, give me like words or phrases or places that you come from and I'll do a rap about it. Yeah. So people shout out their names, places, little stories about themselves. And I did a rap and it, <laughs> it brought the house down all of a sudden. And I was like, oh, all right. And I walked off stage and uh, two guys that worked at the pub said, oh, we do like a, a sort of late night comedy thing once a month here. You should come and do that rap thing. Give you fifty quid. Mm. So I was like, all right. And that was it. That's how it started. And it was so ramshackle, my my first year. Just never really fully preparing. And some gigs. I would like I say, take the roof off. And literally the next one, abject death. But you didn't
0: it didn't freak didn't, I, you
2: out. No, because I didn't acknowledge it as death until I don't know, months later, months later, I'd entered um a, a competition called So You Think You're Funny. Yeah. And I got all the way to the final, still do, using that same approach, not fully preparing anything. So um, in the build-up to going up to Edinburgh to do the final of that that competition in in uh, two thousand and eight, I um, I was doing lots of little gigs wherever I could, underneath pubs, little backwaters, anywhere. And it was the heat of the summer, as July. It was really really hot, and I'd spent the last three months wearing a, a, a cardigan to all of my gigs mm-hmm. for one reason. There's one night I was in quite a tough room and I was wearing a cardigan, not for any reason other than I was just wearing that cardigan. And I got up and I was always thinking to myself, I don't have a strong opener, you know? And I got up there and again, I'm sort of, I'm in an in. I thought, first, let me tell them I'm a rapper. Get that out of the way. I think that's important. I need to tell them that. And I got up there and I said, oh, hey, I'm I'm Doc. I'm I'm a, I'm a rapper. Um, and I could, straight away, I could see people sort of wincing a little bit. so i went not uh, not not anymore i I, I wear cardigans now but um and literally just just an aside like that and it got a big laugh and i thought oh maybe the funny thing is the fact that i'm i'm retired i'm a retired rapper Uh and it sort of begun there and i was it gave me so much confidence the laugh on that cardigan aside that i did the same thing the next night wore a cardigan and said not anymore i wear cardigans now and then that became my opener for like three months Yeah. to the point where I was in this pub, you know, trying to be spontaneous with this line that I've been saying for three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's boiling hot. We're in like a darkened room. People are like, you know, fanning themselves. And uh, I go, hey, hey I'm, I'm Doc. Uh, I'm a rapper. Um, not anymore. And someone goes, mate, why are you in a cardigan? <laughs> <laughs> why are you wearing a card it's boiling <laughs> and I thought yeah I've really got I've got to drop this bit it's ridiculous or
0: just find another uh, cooler item of clothing <laughs> that you can wear um, in all seasons
2: yeah that, that says old man that still says old guy
1: <laughs> hey there are moments in everybody's life some are big and some are small moments I have done a selection of the big moments from my mind. Now I'm going to share them with you all. Moments, big
2: moments.
1: I'm going to ask you now
0: a question. Mm. This is a new feature on the podcast. Oh, right, okay. My biggest moments. And uh, you can interpret that mm. in any way you like. Okay. Uh, but I'm going to ask you for uh, a few of your biggest moments Throughout the podcast, we'll see how it goes. This might be a feature that only lasts <laughs> for this week. episode. But um, so tell me about a moment. And I warned you about this this morning, yeah. Even though I should have warned you about it a few days no, ago. No, no, it's
2: maybe. fine. I, think, I, I don't think you want a few days on this kind of stuff. Because right, then it okay. starts getting a bit too. You overthink it. You overthink it, man. Yeah, yeah. And it all feels a bit try hard. I like that's my um, that's, that's my <laughs> MO. Um, so. A big, oh, yeah. Big moments. Yeah. One of your mm. biggest moments. Mm. One of the really memorable ones that sort of ties into the, the story I was telling you about the sort of transition from rap was uh, during the Ronson days. It was that because we'd done some small gigs, um, but it was one where I walked out at a festival. And it was, you know, I don't know how many tens of thousands of people. in there. That's just
0: huge. Is that the Isle of Wight one?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Just massive, you know. And I, I've been in those crowds so many times. I love festivals. And you know, you know. Sometimes you just turn back, jump up, and turn back, and just look at the mass of people, and imagine what it must be like on stage. Mm. And that was just that was that was a huge moment in my life. Just stepping out, I was with Lily Allen and Amy Amy Winehouse. We did so a couple were, of songs. You
0: were part of a kind of it was a, like a Ronson. collective.
2: Yeah, it was uh, Mark Ronson, me, Winehouse. Uh, And Santo Gold, Uh you know, Santo Gold, Um, the Haggis Horns, brilliant, like Scottish horn section, obviously. And uh, Daniel Merriweather, Mm -hmm. Australian singer. So it's like a sort of real collective. And, um, you know, we all did different numbers, um, which ended up being on the version album, which he started recording about halfway through when we started touring together but it's just that one moment you know stepping on i remember lily's mic wasn't working properly and there was a few little technical difficulties but still like everything you said forty thousand people just the adrenaline that i felt lasted for a couple of days i've never experienced that before yeah and i think that's why everything else after that felt a bit of a a bit of a come down you know
0: so what were you doing on that particular show then were you sort of rapping with yeah it was a Lily little range
2: of- bit of backing singing bit, bit of rapping I'd introduce the band and then the other thing was a rap with Lily on a cover of the Kaiser Chiefs song oh my god oh yeah yeah and I occasionally I'd do a little rap for Amy on Valerie oh really some of the first times it was uh, it was performed
0: yeah Quite and so would you guys Or I know, very strange. Did you see that documentary about Amy? Of course. Amy? Yeah, yeah.
2: Of course, I'm credited as a researcher. Really. Are you Yeah, right? yeah. I, I stayed behind a long time to see my name. So you Os- that was the most important thing in the film. Sure.
0: You're an Oscar-winning researcher.
2: Dude, I never thought of it like that. Yes, mate. I'm putting that on the website, on my Twitter handle, immediately. We might have to pause for
0: me to do it. <laughs> that was a heartbreaking Oh, uh, Dude, film.
2: it was a bit like watching a horror film, Yes, if I'm honest. I mean, I got contacted... Um, by the director a couple of years before the the movie came out. I mean, the the process of putting the footage together, doing the interviews, getting everything signed off, it takes forever. I mean, he's been working on it since Senna, you know. And um, he met with me. Initially, I was very, very sceptical about talking to him. I hadn't properly made the Senna connection, I don't think. Right. Because it was a friend of a friend, basically, who said, "Um, I know this guy, he's making this movie about Amy. And I was just like... Not really interested. I mean, that band I was in, we lost two members, you know. And there was a lot of heartbreak and a lot of personal f- feelings and all people, sorts of People stuff. because of drugs? Yeah. I mean, yeah. we lost Jason Ray from, from the Haggis Horns, who was married to Corinne Bailey Ray, uh, who was just like Amy, just one of the loveliest people you'll ever meet. And it's just so heartbreaking when a like a young person, cause I I'd dealt with my dad's death around the same time, which was upsetting, of, of course, you know, it's, it's your own dad. But at the same time, he'd had such a great it. He was 81, you know, and he was ready as well. It's just totally different. Going to a young person's funeral is like a next level of just horror, really. So, yeah, you know, it still felt a little bit raw. And also, I didn't want to say anything out of turn. Uh, I didn't know who else had turned it down or agreed so I was a bit standoffish, and then when I made the center connection and realized how sensitive this guy was, you know, I agreed to sit down and talk with him. And I told him what I just told you, and he said, "Don't worry." Everybody said the same thing, and and he just made me some guarantees, and it was enough for me. I, I really felt a, he was a genuine soul, and I, and, I, and I still do. Plus, he had a he developed a close relationship with Nick, who was a, her original manager, who's just a top top guy. And I thought if if Shamansky says it's okay, then it's it's okay and sure enough it was i think the one thing you could take from that film without any shadow of a doubt is that the film is on her side you know like you watch that film and for her dad to specifically get angry or people at ireland specifically get angry i think sort of says more about them than anybody else because i think what the film's doing is saying we're all a little bit at fault we all made a joke about her or we all did none of us really acknowledge the seriousness of it
0: yeah how do you think things could have been done differently there then um because you feel one of the one of the sad feelings you get watching it is that it's just there's no way you can derail her almost she's determined mm. it feels like to but you know and unfortunately she's surrounded by all these people who seem unable or unwilling to
2: derail her for whatever reason but do you think anyone really could have helped someone like that i think it was tricky i mean you you know from being an artist that no matter what level of artist you are you have these huge insecurities and huge mood swings if you add to that like the level of of, of fame that, mm-hmm. that that amy had the levels of pressure um and then you pile drugs on top yeah of we, that. we could have all we could have all been an amy winehouse you know and, and then and there's there's very little that people could really do when you consider her closest friends at a point were were shut out. Not necessarily directly by her. Um, I think in, by the end it was even physically difficult to get close to her. So. Yeah, yeah.
0: That bit of footage where um, she wins the Grammy. Mm. Oh, my God. <laughs> and her... it's It's hard to describe the look on her face, mm. isn't it? Because it's sort of shock and... Uh, excitement, and I don't know, but it's all, almost eerie because you sort of think it almost looks as if she knows she's doomed at that point.
2: Yeah, it's it's really really odd that, really really odd, and and it's it's something that you've seen before as well with with certain uh, people. That strange, I mean, there's that strange photo of of Tupac staring out of the car window about an hour or so before he he gets shot in Vegas, and there's a look on his face that just. It's just... He's had enough. Yeah, yeah. All the drama that's been following him around, you know? I actually did a thing for Radio 4, presented a, a documentary about um, a particular period in 1981 where a lot of crazy shit happened. And one of the people I interviewed was the last guy to interview John Lennon uh-huh. at the Dakota. And he he had a similar moment with, with John the, the day before he was killed, you know, where he, he actually implored John uh, to maybe up the security because he'd seen Mark Chapman hanging around, being weird. Um, there'd been other threats. And, and John sort of laughed it off in a way that this interviewer f- felt a little bit like he's just, you know, he's, he's tired of all the all the bullshit. He just wants to live his life, but he, he can't. It's this, this a deal that... You kind of make with the devil when you get as huge as that, based off of your talent. And I can see similarities with with Tupac, with with Lennon, with, with with Winehouse. Yes. And I don't think there's any coincidence that we rarely see their likes again, at least for long periods. So yeah, that was a that was a big moment. It yeah. turned somber at the end there. Sorry. Well, that's okay. <laughs> that's, that's
0: that's part of life. That's what makes this podcast so amazing. <laughs> so we can accommodate. The light and the dark.
1: and spend in your shop These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com buxton for a free trial and when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace.
2: Yes. You've written a children's book. I have. There it is. Look, you can see it. I we're, am bare. We're, we're actually sat in, in my man shed at the end yeah. of my garden. Uh, yeah, this is so nice. All my stuff is here. There's some memorabilia knocking about.
0: And so this is your first children's book, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm really, I'm really hyped about it. Like, I'm really proud of it. Because you've got children, right? Yeah. And, you know, as you know from, from being a dad, you you do a lot of accidental research into into children's books. You read
1: a lot of Because you read a lot of shit. Oh,
2: mate. There's so much. I'm, don't get me wrong. There are some classics out there. We're all aware yeah. of what they are. Let's but not concentrate
0: is... on the bad ones. I wanted to ask you about some of of the books that you loved when you were growing oh, up. Oh yeah. And some of the ones that you have been re- because when you find when you are a parent mm. and you are reading to your children at night, when a good one comes along, oh. it's
2: joyous. You try and coax it into their hands every night. Because <laughs> sometimes they the latch drugs. on
0: to ones that are torture oh, God. to read and you just and it's, I mean, have you ever hidden one or thrown one away?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, the ones that are sort of super promotional, that are just like spin-offs from movies, cartoons, just so lazily written or just covered in glitter. Yeah. Just out, out. And they don't miss them, but you've got to sneak them away. You do, The worst invention for parents is the see-through recyclable bags, bags. (laughs) The amount of times I've been caught out throwing some shit away that my kids do not want or need, but they see it, and then it's like, how could you, mate? You've got to wait till they're at school, yeah. And then you do Have the, the uh, charity shop run. Have the clear out. Um, no, there are some. There are some absolute stone cold classics that I was so confident in from my childhood. That I was so confident that I went to my mum's house and dug them out of the attic and brought them back and tested them on the kids. To see so, if is still it your mum
0: that read to you when you were little, mum? My,
2: my, and my dad. Yeah. read read to me quite a lot. My dad. My dad used to. Sing me a song, I always remember that. He used to sing Young at Heart, uh uh-huh. Yeah, and on when he got up to this is the best part the Frank like, Sinatra yeah, one, not do, the Blue no, no, one, 100% the Sinatra, <laughs> 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 young at heart. dad, dad, I'm really tired, please. And then he'd get his fiddle out
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: quite, quite, yeah. No, I, I used to love that little Sinatra rendition, mm. yeah, but mm-hmm. I, when I went back to my mum's. Uh, I dug out Not Now, Bernard. Oh, that's good. Possibly my favourite picture book of it's all time. That's good. And did it ever freak you out, Not Now, Bernard? It always made me laugh, which makes me worry a little bit about myself because reading back, reading it back to my kids... Do a
0: pricey for someone who's not familiar with Not Now, Bernard. Well,
2: re- this is it. Reading it back to my kids, I realised Not Now, Bernard by David McKee is actually a story about parental abuse. It's about neglect uh a boy who's ignored thoroughly by his parents he he says at the beginning to his mum, mom there's a monster in the garden she says not now bernard so he tells his dad you know she's doing the washing up tells his dad dad's trying to read the paper not now bernard so he's ignored on page one and two so page three he goes to confront the monster on his own because his parents won't help monster just eats him so he's dead page three there's a homicide right kid's dead and then the monster goes in the house uh, to the mum and she's like she breaks a vase she's like oh not now Bernard so he goes and bites the dad's leg he's like ah not now Bernard and they just carry on with their day eventually the mum brings him like a TV dinner plonks him in front of the TV and throughout this day you see how they would have treated their son with disdain with no, no respect of, 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 of his character who he is Yeah, you know they treat the monster the same way and in the end the mum puts the monster to bed and the monster actually says, for the first time, he, he says something. He says, but I'm a monster. And she just says, not now, Bernard, and switches off the light, black. And it's like, it's so powerful. It's so funny, dark. It's, it's everything. Like, that, to me, is the number one kids' book of all time, like picture books. I know that's controversial. People always say where the wild things are. or Tiger who hungry came to tea. Yeah, they're all classics. One, yeah. Don't get me wrong. Sure. But for me, not now, Bernard is the most sort of, grown-up children's I don't know it's It's very funny to a a, like a four-year-old yeah and it's meaningful to a a, a (laughs) 36-year-old
0: as a parent I mean it is it's shocking because it's one of the anxieties you have as a parent that you know you do just shut your children down sometimes because how many
2: times are you looking at your computer or your phone more than you're looking in your kid's eyes they're trying to show you some shit they did like a little drawing okay the drawing's terrible but you know they, they just want a little bit of your time. Mm. And then with technology, it's so easy to palm them oh, off just, on. There you go. Take the iPad. Yeah. Shut up. And
0: they're happy to check it out. Yeah. And you think, all right, good. I've got some peace now. But mm. then, oh, it feels bad.
2: I'm terrified of the future. I mean, that's the main thing about being a parent, isn't it? I'm just terrified of the future. I don't sleep properly, even though now I can because my kids are big. I still don't sleep properly because I'm just always a little bit anxious. Yeah. I think I
0: have a certain amount of faith in the human race's capacity for adjusting and adapting
2: Mm.
0: i feel like we've gone through very revolutionary times in the last 20 years i'm
2: telling you the 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 digital revolution is possibly more profound than the industrial revolution Uh i think in the way that it's changed the way we communicate with each other the way we treat each other our expectations Of each other, I think it's deeper than the industrial. I I genuinely do. Industrial revolution made the way we live our everyday lives profoundly different, no question, and and easier. That's the but that that for me is where the similarities end between the two. Look at dating, for example. Mm -hmm. You you could do a full on like CSI level of investigation into a potential partner before even meeting them. Yeah, down to the DNA. Everything, I mean, it's insane, yeah. And I, I like, I, I'm, I'm not saying that's a, a good or a bad thing, I'm just saying it's nuts, and that's the nature. Do you think of,
0: anyone really does that though? I don't know, but it, you've got the option,
2: yeah. Would you get a DNA test,
0: you know, like you can get you can go and get tested and just see if
2: you're likely to drop dead in 20 years? I don't, that kind of stuff, I don't want to know. I'd rather just drop I mean, dead, you I think. could
0: say, I suppose, from the people who are offering these tests, they would say, well, you have the opportunity to get treatment for certain conditions ahead of time, which might
2: help you. We're already living way too long, yeah, you know? I remember my dad saying, the last 10 years have just been shit. They've been shit. You know? <laughs> oh, They've just been yeah. really shit. It's hard, yeah. He was like, I don't want to live for another 20 years.
1: Yeah.
0: I guess you, you need to be able to manoeuvre yourself into a situation where there are certain things you like that make you happy that you can carry on doing mm. however old you are. You've mm. just got to be mindful that your whole happiness is not based on snowboarding.
2: <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah. you're going to yeah. be unlikely to... Because your knees are going to be the first thing yeah. to pack in.
1: No.
0: Um, Let's return to children's books uh, for a little while. And what are the ones now that you have particularly enjoyed reading to your daughters?
2: There's some new guys out there that are absolutely superb. I mean, Emily Gravett, she writes children's picture books on a whole other level. She illustrates as well. But sort of kind of interactive without being naff. Um, And then John Classen, he's got a book called I Want My Hat Back. Uh-huh. which has sort of done that weird thing that every now and again a children's picture book does, which is cross over and become like a book that adults just talk about because it's it's funny and it's it's kind of dark. And it's just about this sort of very deadpan-looking bear on the search for his hat. It's got that sort of tradition of children's books, the journey, go around, ask a different animal. Uh-huh. yes. The the dialogue is... It's sort of Woody Allen esque. It's it's really funnily written. So it takes those traditions, turns them on its on their head, and there then there is a there is a murder towards the end. So there's like a, a big twist, and uh, I, w- I wouldn't want to ruin it. But it's it's a it's a fantastic book. There's there's loads of great books on the market, and just to see mine anywhere close to them. So what's your? Like,
0: what, I don't know your. I haven't read your book yet.
2: Well, make sure you take a copy. With I'd you. love it's, to take um, a copy. It's and just about a bear who's a prick, really. Yeah. Um, I got quite frustrated by those children's books that like suddenly become moralistic without really earning it. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to create a character who sort of does he get away with stuff? Maybe he does. Maybe he do- you decide if, you, if what he's doing is right or wrong. But it's a slow process. It takes like nearly two years to get a picture book out. Whoa. It's really slow. Like, my kids don't even care anymore. You know, they're too old. Yeah. <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I wrote it, I was like, oh, it's going to be great having little kids. And they're going to love like, having a little picture book. No, they've, they've both moved on. They've moved on. They're reading Charlotte Bronte.
0: Um, well, I, I'm looking forward to uh, introducing that to my daughter. We're reading the Northern Lights trilogy at the moment. Great. That's really good. What happened with the movie? It's kind of yeah. Well, I tell
2: you that did it flop?
0: It was it massively flop? flopped. It was a flop, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And it's a shame because obviously they expected it to be this huge franchise which would roll on. Is
2: it one of those unfilmable things? Is that what it is? I mean,
0: it's partly yeah. It's it would be very hard to to do a really great job and to compress all that. Stuff and all those characters, and the temptation to lean on crappy CG would be very strong,
2: yeah. Um,
0: because the whole one of the conceits of the whole universe is that everyone has an expression of their soul in physical form right. a demon okay. they call them demons
2: D-A-E-M-E. Uh, and you've got your hands out there like as if you're holding like a glass ball is that is, is, no it's what, like uh, uh, it, that would these? that would
0: be your demon it would be like a little bunny or whatever oh right so some people have a uh, um, and it just, it's
2: just like on your shoulder kind it's, of thing it
0: follows you around and it can oh. talk and you chat to it and it's your pal for your whole life and the, and and it's cool. the opposite sex to what you were born so right. if you are born female then you have a little male a little male demon he doesn't deal demons, with like funny. transgender demons but maybe that's in a <laughs> right. separate okay. book but um you know there was lots of good things about that golden compass film and um they they certainly tried but it just didn't work out for whatever mm-hmm. reason and they abandoned the whole thing at some point someone will try it again and you'll get some in our 2 type Director who might have a new spin it feel, on it. And... It
2: feels like that's what it needs. Like, i don't you ever think, like, the films that are remade are always the ones that just don't need a remake. And then I can always think of films that I think somebody needs to do this again. Yeah. You know, like they're, they're busy remaking, you know, The Italian Job or Get Carter or something like that. Yes. And I like, I think of films like Dark Days. Was it called Dark Days on with Angela Bassett? The one about dreams. Strange Days. Strange Do you remember Strange Days? Catherine Bigelow. Catherine Bigelow. That film there has got a brilliant premise. Right? Absolutely brilliant. There's this guy that deals in in in, in dreams. And they're on these little it's it's so of its time that they're on like um what was that? Crap technology. (laughs) Mini disc. They're on mini discs. Yeah. You know? And I just thought if someone like, you know, your man uh, Nolan, Chris Nolan had this somebody could make a really great film out of this now.
0: I know, and, and instead they just go ahead and make films that they nailed the first yeah, time Yeah, they're around.
2: absolutely nailed. It, it <laughs> never makes sense to me. I always think about, you know, you and you and Joe and how much you used to take the piss out of out of <laughs> movies and these these situations and stuff. And it always reminds me of something that Joe said. Because there's, actually there's a story behind this story. It's the story of how I met you and the story of how I met Joe separately. Uh-huh. I was working on Attack the Block. I, I wrote some some songs for Joe That's right. for the for the film. So I got invited to the premiere, which was like, to me, so exciting. I've never been to a premiere before, in fact, or since, actually. <laughs> but um, <laughs> You know, me and my wife were there. We were hyped, you know, ready to stay to the very end to see my credit and that whole thing. But, you know, Joe did the requisite thing of coming on stage with the cast, you know, and yeah. little just a quick announcement beforehand. And he said something that's always stayed with me. He said, you know, me and Adam, we used to take the piss out of films all the time. And he said, now I'm going to have to rethink that because I've realised how hard it is to make a shit film, let alone a good film. <laughs> you know, just the process of putting a shit movie together takes hundreds of people, hours. And uh, that's always kind of stuck with me. I kind of respected the filmmaking process a lot more since then. And what what amazes me about Attack the Block is you in amongst all that 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 bluster the action and the comedy the horror you can still feel the essence of that very personal story for joe being mugged in 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 the place where he he grew up unexpectedly and 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 wanting to know the story behind that rather than just the shock of being mugged that little personal anecdote you can still feel that all the way through the movie and i think it's really really hard to get Across your original message from your original screenplay, no matter what it is, in a big movie situation. Because mm. after a while, just everything gets more and more bastardized because of time or money or other chefs, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I always admire Joe for that, I think.
0: I boycotted the film because I found it very racist.
2: <laughs> so I would never see it. Um, I'm joking, of
0: course. Speaking of racism, though, one of the things that I saw of yours early on mm. was on Russell Howard's Good News. Right, yeah. And you did a uh, a bit called Everybody's Racist. <laughs> yeah.
2: A rap. It's a mantra, repeatedly say this. You're not a loser. It's just everybody's racist. Yeah, that's right. I said it. why you... Nobody ever give you any credit. Why are you last on the list of your doctor's patients? Chronological or is your surgery racist? What type of dog shits on the pavement in front of your house? Alzation, racist. Say you're typing in a search engine trying to write haters with a z at the end, and your computer goes, Did you mean haters? That's how you know Google's racist. How come every time an igloo's made, it's always white? Hmm? Eskimos, racist.
0: Can you? Talk- Talk me through how that routine came about,
2: Huh. if you remember. I, yes. Um, yeah, so one thing that always made me chuckle was being around some of my friends who would, you know, just smoke weed, just play video games, but always be really vocal when it came to why they weren't working, you know, why they didn't have a job. Or why they weren't getting ahead in life. And it was because of racism or like some kind of government based conspiracy. And it always made me laugh because I'd be looking at them sat there smoking a huge zoo, playing FIFA. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, maybe maybe it's a bit of both. Who knows? Maybe it's a bit of you, a bit of them. I'm just gonna throw it out there. You know, we debate about it and laugh about it. And I just thought it was a real issue that I could make a really preachy, serious rap song about. Or I could make a serious point in a really stupid way, which I much, much prefer <laughs> prefer doing. So some people get that, and some people don't, and it's fine, you know. But what it what it's really about is exactly that, you know. So I'm kind of rapping from the perspective of a of a collective of of, of people that I know who will blame everything on somebody else rather than themselves. But had you
0: experienced racism up to that point? Oh, and yeah, did, of and course. Did, but did that course. make you feel differently about writing that? And were you worried about uh, writing something jokey about a serious subject like
2: not, that? Not at all. Not at all. I was, I was, I was never panicked because I always thought if I'm ever challenged, I've got so much to say about this. From from so many different sides, you know. Anybody, if anybody found it offensive for one reason or another, I, I can totally back it up. That's never ever been thrown at me for that, to be honest, which I'm, I'm I'm glad about. And I think sometimes you know when something's non-offensive by how much everybody, a diverse group of people, enjoy it. You know, other times you know how offensive something is from within because you don't do the bit because you see someone in the crowd who you think might be offended by it. That's mm-hmm. how you know it probably is offensive. You've got a whole joke about disabled people and suddenly there's five people in wheelchairs in the front row and you don't do the bit. It might not be a great bit. Because if it was a great bit, you could say it and the guys in the wheelchairs will probably enjoy it more than anybody in the room, you know? And there's prejudice in that, even in that, isn't there? To, to withdraw your disabled bit because there's disabled people in. They would be the first to say, well, dude, what? We, we can't take a joke. Well, you, that's prejudice in itself to say that you're not going to do the bit because we're here, you know. What was the last thing that you were offended by? Do you remember?
0: Oh. Do, you, do you get offended? Do you feel like I'm offended?
2: Yeah, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because uh, you know, if 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 you class yourself as a, a comedian or or somebody who uh, you know takes the piss as part of their profession, yeah, it does feel a bit rich. To, to get offended by stuff.
0: Yeah, because I think generally you don't... I get you, you, you irritated. Don't, right. You don't, you don't think that's offensive. Mm. I just think it's weird when people start characterising something as offensive. It's yeah. like
2: things are usually just lame. You know, people often ask me, oh, are you offended by the fact that this white comedian is using the N-word? I go, well, I don't know. Let me see the context. I don't, I don't want to see what you've written down or, you know, taken a clip from on YouTube. Bring me to his show or her show. Let me see the whole show. Let me see it in in context, full context with the the rest of the act, and I will tell I will tell you if I think it's lazy or totally fine, you know. And Mm -hmm. and I think you've got to have that context. And do you get because you've worked with
0: Ricky Gervais quite a bit? Yeah,
2: who you know splits. And he's right; he's someone who treads the
0: line in a a lot of ways. He checks
2: stuff with me, you know. I mean, he
0: did that joke that uh, about Lenny Henry and extras. (sighs) Uh, which was tough, really. I mean, I didn't like that joke.
2: I've worked with both men, yeah. You know, and
0: and for those who didn't see, it was that like, there was a moment where he was talking to some people and they were talking about uh, black comedians. He was like, "Come on, name a funny black comedian." And he and says like, he looks Chris at Rock. a picture of Lenny Henry on the on the wall. Uh, yeah, and he's like, it's "Who's like Chris a funny Rock, Eddie
2: Murphy?" And he says, "British." Right, right. And it stumps him. And they look. He looks around the room, and there's a poster of Lenny Henry, and he still can't think of anybody. That's the gag. Yeah. Um it was funny, but it's just because it's so close to the bone, it's somebody from our you I like I look at all comedians and I think no matter if I don't find you funny at all, I see you as part of my sort of community yeah, yeah, in a way. Yeah. Like I've I've sometimes seen stand ups sort of have a go at you know, a bigger stand up as part of their routine. And I just think no 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 You it- don't you don't do that. Maybe we'll we'll have a laugh about that comic, you know, in the pub or whatever. But I don't think you can work it into your set. So I, I don't know. I, I I think pick your targets basically, and uh, maybe that one was a little below the belt. But then at the same time, I have to say I laughed. So mm. yeah, I can't really say shit. I can't really get on my high horse about it. But no, working with Ricky is 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 interesting because that is what he does. He polarizes opinion on a professional level like you know, as, as many people love him as, as, as loathe him which is interesting whereas yes. the, the rest of us are probably more likely to just try and make everybody love us please
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: finally before we wrap things up mm. how about hitting me with another oh my biggest moment here's the my biggest moment jingle <laughs> hey
1: there are moments in everybody's life some are big and some are small.
2: Moments, big moments. I thought about this and I, I thought this has to be in there because it's kind of life and death. My my younger brother saved my life in Accra, of all places. Where's in, that? In Ghana. It's the capital of Ghana. Oh. I was out there for a family event um, that had all gone hideously wrong. And uh, so much so that I decided to leave ghana and come back to england early to pay for a whole new plane ticket that's how drastically bad this event had gone i can't really get into detail of why it went so badly but um just family drama family drama oh, and man. uh i uh decided to have this red snapper that i'd seen uh, where i was staying that looked delicious before i got on this early plane so i sat down with my uncle my brother-in-law and my little brother and it was absolutely delicious this grilled red snapper took a big bite of it and um, a huge bone got lodged in my throat mm. and I just couldn't, I just couldn't cough it up. I couldn't swallow it. I knew I was struggling, you know, almost immediately. I was, I was panicky. I, I couldn't speak. I was, I was tapping my uncle. He tried to do the Heimlich on me. He not know what he's doing. He's trying to do the Heimlich on me and not working. Um, staff was sort of like coming out. People are starting to freak out a little bit. How old were you? <sighs> This is about, I think this was 2008. So I just started doing oh, okay. comedy. Yeah. Yeah, not, not that long ago. And, um, you know, I'm out of my chair now. I'm on my hands and knees. Uh, my brother-in-law starts thumping my back, just like whacking me. And um, I could see my hands. They were turning the grey. Oh, man. Yeah. And then my vision started blurring. Oh. And everything started turning white. And I was like... Oh my oh my god. I'm gonna die. Like, I'm actually gonna die. Because I wanted that
0: red snapper.
2: Because of like a fish in, in Ghana. And I'm not even having a good time, not like dying having a good time. Yeah. Like I just this is just this is it. I can't believe this is where it ends, you know. Wow. I actually had those thoughts. I, I never never thought that would happen. Was it terrifying? Oh my god, it was terrifying. I didn't have any of that your life flashes before your eyes things. I just thought, Oh, I'm not gonna not gonna see my, my kids, my wife again. The other thing that I became acutely aware of was my brother-in-law punching me in the back. because uh-huh. I, th- I was thinking, I'm dying here, but that's still really annoying. That's really annoying and it's not helping. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, uh, my brother hauled me up, my younger brother, and he just shoved his fingers down my throat and I vomited. Uh-huh. And the propulsion pushed the, uh, the bone up and out of my throat and uh, I was fine. Oh, man. <laughs> But yeah, he's he essentially saved my life, so I don't. I guess I I owe him a lot, i I, I have to do anything. I think is that how it goes? I don't know. Yeah, it's grim. my third my third moment is is much quicker. I can sneak it in at the Go end if you want. Sneak one in. It was actually going to see the Force Awakens, and oh. it's not so much because like I'm a huge Star Wars geek, but there was just this moment. Sat there, I had my wife, my my two kids there, and. There was a moment about 10 minutes in. I think it was when that you get that first sense of that fallen uh, Imperial starship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there there's was, a... Um, what's her name, the main Ray? character?
0: Is it Ray? Something like Ray
2: that. Ray flying around uh, looking for scraps. Scavenging. Scavenging. And uh, just looked across. You know, we all looked across at each other a couple of times during that scene, just like, oh, 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 this is going to be good. And it was just, it was just a, a moment where... I felt complete and total happiness Yeah, for for, for a, a real sort of fleeting moment. I, I just felt this is everything, you know, Star Wars, my family were all just over the moon. I, it, the reason it struck me so hard is because I never give happiness a chance. I always like instead of just enjoying the moment, I think about the next moment or I overanalyze the moment instead of just enjoying and being in it. You know and then there's constant search for happiness i'm constantly thinking oh maybe the grass is greener maybe i shouldn't be a family man maybe i should just like walk out and change my name and go and live in mexico and see what happens you know or just all this stupid stuff i can never just look at my situation and think dude this is this is amazing Yeah, yeah like this is incredible in comparison with a lot of other lives you could have lived this is amazing like just enjoy it and that 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 moment i really felt that you know it took jj
0: abrams jj abrams to um give you a philosophical epiphany
2: Mm. Mm. god that film was good
0: there we go ben bailey smith thank you very much indeed to ben for talking to me i really enjoyed that and uh, speaking of Star Wars, I went out and invested in the Blu-ray of The Force Awakens the other day at Sainsbury's. And uh, I got the um, the light side edition. You get a choice of, of a cardboard cover that is mainly black or a cardboard cover that is mainly white. And I went for the white one because I thought, I'm going to stay away from the dark side. Because... Uh, well, I just, you know... I'm just old i'm getting old at a certain point you know like when you're young the dark side's great isn't it once you're approaching 50 you think no i'll tell you what let's uh, keep the dark side at bay for as long as possible anyway um it was fun it was actually i enjoyed myself more than i did at the cinema seeing it for the first time um I watched it with, with my daughter, Hope, and with my wife. My wife, she had not seen The Force Awakens and found it greatly entertaining. And then after that, I forced my wife to watch Special Correspondence, Ricky Gervais' film, on Netflix. And now my wife has left me. I'm joking. I haven't seen it yet. I'm sure it's terrific. Thanks very much indeed to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for production support and to Matt Lamont for editing help. Thank you for downloading this podcast. Until the next time we're together, I want you to take extra good care out there. All right? I love you.
1: Bye!